How significant is the problem of fake news? How do we as consumers of information find reliable and credible sources of analysis and news in this information abundant age? Well, joining me to discuss on the podcast is Nicholas Lorimer. He is with the Institute of Race Relations and also the Daily Friend. He's the host of the Daily Friend podcast. Nicholas, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar. It's very good to be here, David. Thanks for having me on. Could you tell our viewers, what is this concept of fake news? How do we define it? So the way we talk about fake news in the paper, um, I, I, was, I co-authored it with uh, Terence Corrigan, who's a, a researcher at the Institute of Race Relations. Um, it's, it's a very old phenomenon, right? We, we, we look at it as essentially a form of propaganda. The, the other word that's often used to describe fake news is misinformation. And that means information that is very deliberately constructed to lead people towards a certain narrative, to confirm pre-existing biases and to rev up people's emotions and passion on a particular subject. Um, uh, generally, that there's some sort of ulterior motive. The person producing the fake news has a malicious intent of some kind, right? They, they want to convince you of something to support them politically or to buy their product or something like that. So in that sense, it's different from just sloppy reporting or mistaken information, which is, of course, very common and is a, is a sibling of, of fake news, but it's not exactly the same thing because there, there isn't malicious intent. Uh, and, and, you know, fake news, the term really, I think, catches fire in about 2016. Um, in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election, there was a lot of shock and horror amongst the uh, commentariat, in, in particularly in the US, uh, particularly on the center left, sort of reaching around to explain how this had happened, right? Many people had read the polls and thought, oh, this is never going to happen. Many people just couldn't imagine Trump as president. And so people, they felt like they needed some silver bullet explanation. And so there were a number of articles and opinion pieces published in places like the New York Times, which said in the aftermath of the election, the real culprit here was fake news. And they said that uh, there were sites, and this is true, that created pro-Trump stories, which were based off of nothing. Um, one of them, was, uh, uh, I think the most well-studied one was a group of people in Macedonia, um, or I think it's called Northern Macedonia nowadays, who created a Facebook page and a news site with completely fabricated stories. And it was entirely profit-driven. But they managed to capture a certain segment of the uh, uh, of the political market in the U.S. by feeding into people's narratives that already existed. Um, now, I think we can debate a lot as to how important this actually was in Donald Trump's election. Um, I think that it's vastly overstated, but you know, it's a, it's a real phenomenon, and this kind of became a buzzword that caught fire, particularly on the American left, um, until uh, at a news conference, Donald Trump turned it around and uh, uh, said that CNN was fake news. You have fake news. Um, and at that point, it sort of became a bit of a bipartisan term that got used just to sort of bash your opponents. Uh, but what is it really? I mean, it's actually, it's not a new phenomenon. The idea that sort of arose out of the 2016, post-2016 debate was that this is new, that it's being driven by social media, that it's, you know, the, the dark side of the internet. But really, it's a very old story. You can go back all the way to ancient Egypt, the Bronze Age, um, and there was a famous battle that historians uh, found out about uh, called the Battle of Kadesh. And for years, historians thought, man, this was a, some fantastic Egyptian victory um, the, by the pharaoh Ramses II. And what happened? 
Well, it turned out later that actually the account that we had had was fake news. Um, they found sources from the other side later that confirmed that basically the Pharaoh had vastly exaggerated his success in order to prop up his own prestige and power. So the idea that, uh, you know, that misinformation is being deliberately peddled, um, it, it's, not any, it's not anything new, but what has happened is that we've gotten technologies that have accelerated the spread and change the way that it happens. So back then, you know, you had to be basically an emperor or a pope or something in order to be able to, to, to spread fake news narratives like this. You had to have thousands of people at your beck and call. And uh, nowadays, you need a Twitter account and some luck, really, um, and, and maybe some good editing skills. And then basically anyone can generate fake news for whatever reason they might envision. Yeah, and in the time of the pharaohs, all you had was scroll of papyrus but today as right. you say anyone with a mobile phone can can start to spread falsehoods or misinformation and uh, exactly. as mark twain once said a, a lie can spread halfway across the world whilst the truth is still putting on its shoes and that has certainly been amplified by social media right but, but it's, it's also worth pointing out that he said that at a time very long before we had the internet email or any kind of social media yeah, so what role does social media play uh, as an amplifier for fake news or misinformation, Nicholas? Um, do you think that the emergence of these social media tech giants is accelerating some of these some of these trends? Uh, you know, are they making making this problem worse, or are they trying to ameliorate some of the worst effects of these of, of misinformation? So I think the answer to both is probably yes. Although, as for their attempts to ameliorate the problems, I think they tend to be quite clumsy um, and not often that helpful, but we can get onto that a little bit later. Um, so really what's happened here is that gatekeepers have been removed from the system. Back in the, back in the past, even as recently as sort of the 1980s, there's a famous fake news hoax where the Soviet Union deliberately spread misinformation that claimed that the United States government was responsible for creating and spreading the HIV uh, disease, the, the, the HI virus, which causes AIDS. And they had to do this using a web of spies and, and controlled academics and uh, a newspaper that, that, that was basically a front for the Soviet intelligence operations that operated out of India. And it was a huge effort that required, you know, the intelligence agencies of, I think, Bulgaria, the Soviet Union and East Germany all cooperating together. Nowadays, um, there was a recent example that we, we look at in our report, uh, Terence and I. Um, you, you may remember the social media and media furor over the Covington Catholic kids. So this was a story that came out of the US where uh, it, it first, there first comes out this video where it, it was described as saying that a, I think it was a, a kid in a MAGA hat is bullying a Native American man. And he was with a crowd of other other kids and this caught fire and it was uh tweeted out by a single account which purports to be a activist teacher from southern california now this story it turned out was not really true um the these kids had been going to a anti-abortion rally in washington dc and they had had a confrontation with a radical group called the black israelites um, and during this confrontation, this strange guy who's 
a little bit of a weird character. Uh, this Native American man had basically pushed himself in between these two groups and started confronting the kids in a very um, confusing way. And so the entire narrative that was set up of uh, bad MAGA kids bullying a Native American elder and uh, this poor guy who was just trying to bring peace was completely demolished. That didn't stop it at first being spread all over social media and uh, even traditional media places like CNN and generating an enormous amount of outrage. Uh, I think one CNN, I think he was, I think it was a CNN contributor said that he wanted to punch the kid in the face and it, it caused enormous amounts of partisan friction and people were you know, threatening to the saying, this is emblematic of everything that's wrong with America. And it really raised tensions on both left and right. Um, something which people I think still hold grudges over to this day. That's how sort of emotionally damaging it was. And it turned out the entire confrontation was a sort of, it was in a charged atmosphere, but really it was sort of confusing and there weren't any clear villains or heroes really in the thing. If anything, the kids were, were victims. Um, but here's the interesting thing. So we had this whole social media debacle driven by this, this uh, confrontation, but it turned out that the account which tweeted the original video that started off the whole thing and that edited it to make it fit a certain narrative, i.e. MAGA kid bad, um, was fake. Someone had stolen a profile picture of a Brazilian blogger, put it on a Twitter account, claimed to be someone who they weren't, and then used it to spread this information. We don't know who that was. It could have been a lone individual. It could have been an internet troll just seeking to cause chaos for fun. Uh, it could have been an intelligence agency, you know, maybe Russia or China seeking to cause discord in the United States. We don't know. And that is what social media has done to the, to the fake news game. A single Twitter account that was completely free was able to cause a media firestorm that lasted about two weeks in the US. So Nicholas, what about here in South Africa? There have been some fairly high profile incidents of uh, media manipulation. I'm thinking of the Bell Pottinger scandal, which basically unleashed an army of Twitter bots, uh, which were spreading uh, uh, falsehoods. So I mean, South Africa and other countries in the developing world are not immune to, to these kinds of, of pressures. Uh, do you think that, uh, here in, in South Africa, we're, we're uniquely susceptible to uh, to some of this high levels of manipulation? Uh, both yes and no. So I think that we have a kind of charged politics with well-established narratives that makes it easy for some ideas to spread around. Um, and, and here I would say it's mostly actually through WhatsApp than, rather than something like Twitter. Uh, we've seen, of course, xenophobic violence is often accompanied with, I used to be a public representative and so a lot of people have my cell phone number. And so occasionally I was forwarded um, sort of fake news messages, which claimed that some horrific thing had been done by foreigners and that urged South Africans to come together and basically teach them a lesson on something calling for xenophobic violence. So, you know, it's that kind of thing that I think does definitely go on and is, is a real problem. Um, there are other countries where much worse things have happened. Uh, so the, 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 the case study for this, I think, is um, in the developing world is 
Myanmar or Burma, as it's often called, where uh, the Burmese government utilizing Facebook, which became very popular in, in Burma um, in 2013 when they liberalized internet access laws. Um, it was, uh, Facebook became really popular because it was sort of like a, it was very easy to access on a cell phone and it was like the one page stop for all your needs. You could advertise, you could uh, check in with your friends, you could message people. And the Burmese military dedicated a section to producing fake news to target the Rohingya people who live in, in Western Myanmar and uh, basically accused them of nefarious crimes and terrorism and to justify an extreme military crackdown and a large amount of violence uh, against them, which amounts essentially to a genocide. Um, and that was at least justified and encouraged through uh, Facebook. And this was also joined by various sort of high-ranking members of the Buddhist priesthood in Myanmar, who used Facebook to mobilize support and militias to go out and basically attack people and kill people. Um, and so, yeah, we, the developing world, you know, the, the consequences are pretty bad. Uh, we've seen, I think, the most recent attempt of this. So you mentioned Bell Pottinger, of course, and we had our whole white monopoly capital um, debacle where Bell Pottinger very deliberately pushed this narrative of, uh, you know, a small cabal of whites basically controlling the South African economy, um, which does amount to fake news and is, I think, classic definition of fake news. Um, but recently, we've seen a similar effort around, maybe not as coordinated, but around this so-called Phoenix Massacre um, relating to the violence that happened in, in KwaZulu-Natal, where while the details of what precisely happened are still a little bit unclear, and there are people in court on various charges of uh, murder and assault and that sort of thing, um, a very particular narrative about uh, Indian people killing black people for racist reasons was was propagated by edited clips and um, out of context videos and things on on social media. So we are vulnerable to it, um, but in a different way to the first world. Nicholas, earlier you mentioned the big tech social media companies and the clumsy way in which they've gone about controlling the spread of misinformation on their platforms. Uh, and often they've overreached and gone into the realm of censorship. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the COVID crisis. Uh, there was the lab leak thesis, uh, which was completely taboo. It was suppressed on all of the tech platforms. And then suddenly, uh, you know, a year down the line, now uh, Facebook was making a, a declaration that, okay, now, now you can talk about this because it seems that the the thesis has more validity. What are your reflections on how the tech companies have have gone about trying to improve the quality of information on their platforms? Yeah, I think you you brought up a really good point there by mentioning the lab leak hypothesis because I think that's exactly a perfect example of how tech companies are sort of fumbling their way through the dark on this stuff. Um, and I think the central problem here is that they assumed that it would be very easy to decide what truth was. Well, unfortunately, most of the things in public in the public realm that are partly debated it's not really clear where the truth lies um, and sometimes there isn't necessarily truth to be found because it depends on different value judgments of things uh, so in many instances we we've seen um, a full spectrum of responses from tech companies 
uh, people pointed out that during the Rohingya genocide that I just uh, talked about, um, Facebook for a very long time did pretty much nothing. They had, I think, two moderators for the whole of Myanmar uh, or a very small number of moderators for the whole of Myanmar. And they essentially just allowed this hate stuff to spread. They relied on algorithms to try and uh, pick out sort of racial slurs targeted at Rohingya people, but these algorithms couldn't read Burmese script properly. And so they flagged innocuous um, things and just generally it was it was a complete disaster. Uh, in more recent times, we've seen uh, sort of a knee-jerk overreaction in the other direction from places like, for example, Twitter, which for a very long time had a policy that political leaders on Twitter should pretty much be allowed to say whatever they like because it's important for people to know what political leaders are saying. Uh, and then they suddenly changed their mind on this when it came to Donald Trump. They said, no, uh, actually some of the tweets he's given are unacceptable and so we're going to start putting warnings on them. And then later they banned him entirely from the platform. Another example is there was a story about uh, that came out just before the 2020 U.S. presidential election that uh, President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was under investigation by the FBI. The story was somewhat complicated and a little bit... Uh, the, the facts were in dispute, and Twitter decided that, no, this was obviously fake news misinformation, and so banned anyone on the platform from talking about it, um, including the New York Post, uh, who I think had their Twitter account shut down. It later emerged that actually it probably wasn't misinformation and in fact he was under investigation so uh, you know there's the tech companies really haven't been able they, they're sort of failing in the dark plenty of stuff gets completely under the radar um because social media platforms are just simply too big to police uh you know you can use algorithms but the algorithms will make mistakes they'll flag people for you know, uh, there, there are examples of people making jokes with each other, where they say something about COVID, or they say something about um, pretending to wish harm on each other, but it's it's all in good humor. And then they get banned for issuing death threats or spreading misinformation. So algorithms, not a fantastic solution. And of course, the parameters of said algorithm still rely on human beings, right, to determine what is true and what is not. Um, and, and so as a result, tech companies have really, I think, destroyed a lot of trust in them. A lot of people are very suspicious that they're selective in who they choose to censor. Um, I think there's definitely at least some validity to that, although it can be overstated. But generally speaking, you know, if you're on the right of the spectrum, you're probably more likely in politics to be censored than on the left, although not always. Um, and, and this is not good because all it does is drive people into alternative channels. Um, and, and it gives fake news, in many cases, I think, an, an aura of authenticity because people will say, well, if it's so bad, why do you have, to, if it's so false, why do you have to censor it? Is it shouldn't it be obvious that it's false? Um, this is a tactic that's often been used by Holocaust deniers. They'll say, oh, why are you so upset that, that I'm, uh, questioning the, the Holocaust if it's so scientifically proven. And um, I think I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the aggressive censorship that many social media platforms are increasingly engaging in, 
particularly now as companies, uh, as governments move to regulate social media companies, the so sort of social media companies are trying to get out ahead of the curve and sort of say, no, no, look, we're good, we're good. You should follow our advice and model for regulating ourselves, um, that this is very likely to cause more harm than good. And of course, uh, as we've seen in certain authoritarian countries, uh, the social media platforms can get lent on to basically uh, censor people or, or ensure that um, damaging narratives to the government are not spread. Nicholas, we've also seen the emergence of so-called fact-checkers. These are often self-appointed organizations or individuals who have positioned themselves as the arbiters of the official truth. And uh, I, I'm quite skeptical of these fact-checkers. Often I think they're pushing a particular ideological line or a narrative. What is your view on these, uh, these fact-checkers? I'd agree with that completely. At the end of the day, uh, fact-checkers often rely on this sort of premise, once again, that truth is very easy to discern. Some social media companies, I think Facebook, for example, has actually incorporated approved fact-checking organizations into their systems of determining what is and what isn't fake news. But while there's supposed to be a sort of fairly broad spectrum of fact-checking organizations and outlets, at the end of the day, you've still got a group of large, mostly political journalists uh, deciding whether something is true or not. And the bias tends to be on, on once again, on the left for this. So fact checkers run into exactly the same problem. They can't always determine what the truth is. Sometimes they'll say something is mostly false when in fact, it's probably a little bit true. Um, there were famous case studies of this. I think that the American right brought up a lot in the uh, 2012 election where something that Mitt Romney said was true, but it was rated as mostly false by, I think it was the Washington Post fact checkers precisely because they said, well, look, it's what he said was literally true, but it gave a misleading impression. And therefore the overall claim is mostly false. <laughs> um, and once you start getting into games like that, where you have all these gray areas and, you know, you've really gone past the point where you can determine what, what is and what is not fake news. So what about the traditional gatekeepers of news and information, the publishing houses, the newspapers, the cable news, television uh, platforms. Uh, my view is that they've kind of undermined their own credibility in many respects. And they are very quick to blame these new technologies and new platforms for the corrosion of, of truth and the credibility of, of information. But in some ways they're playing this game too. No, that's exactly right. Uh, one of the personal bugbears that I have is that Twitter drives so much of the media environment. Twitter is a platform which, depending on the country, actually has relatively low rates of penetration with the general population. Uh, it also has a habit of rewarding emotive or unsourced content, which is shocking. Um, that's just the way that stuff spreads on Twitter. And yet, um, and, and also it tends to create sort of bubbles very deliberately, right? The people you follow, you see stuff that they like, they see stuff that you like. It creates these little circles of people who are largely completely unaware of each other. There's a left-wing bubble and a right-wing bubble. And this, of course, means that, uh, but yet despite this fact, Twitter has an enormous influence on what journalists report on, what they decide what is important on what views they give uh, public airing. Um, 
go go look on a South African story which claims the the you know the, you see this at least once a week. Twitter outraged at whatever it could be uh, some politician, it could be some celebrity, and go and look how many people actually are being used as the source for this outrage. And sometimes you'll find that literally two or three people are upset about something commented as such on Twitter and journalists have taken this to be representative of the vast majority of the nation and so write the story in such a way um, and I think it's been absolutely debilitating because now what's the point of trusting traditional media if all they do is report garbage that you can see on Twitter anyway you might as well just go and read Twitter for yourself because it's the same quality uh, the Covington Catholic kid story that I mentioned earlier one of the big reasons it caught fire was because the social media uh, account in question and the, the narrative that it created were um, reinforced and given credibility by major news outlets such as CNN, which ran with it as a sort of major story and had people commenting on it and they got analysts in and they gave credibility and credence to the entire um, idea. So... I think that media platforms really need to take a step back and say, actually, you know, the, the, the tail of social media should not be wagging the dog. What makes us different is not that we can compete with social media in terms of speed and quickness and on the groundness, but we can compete with social media in terms of being uh, uh, reporting with integrity, reporting with accuracy, and maybe taking things a little bit slower. And until media, I think, realizes that they're going to be in trouble, and further erode their, erode their credibility, which is already at an all-time low all over the globe. Yeah, okay, Nicholas. Well, this is the Solutions Podcast, and I'm just kind of reviewing our conversation, thinking, okay, well, if you can't trust the established media organizations, you can't trust the tech companies, you can't trust the fact-checkers, uh, how do we get access to reliable information that can help us to inform our business decisions, our strategic uh, decision-making, our political choices, and, and, and other kinds of life choices, if you will. Uh, where can we go? How can we improve our, the quality of information that we have access to? This is a concept I really like from the right-wing American talk show host, Eric Erickson. He talks about how the quest for a silver bullet can drive you mad. And I think the problem with most of the, the solutions we've seen so far in this, this realm, they've really been silver bullet solutions, right? We're going to create an algorithm that detects all the fake news and immediately puts it in a separate category. Or we're going to have fact checkers who only objectively look at the truth and stamp down on it. Or we're going to have an army of moderators who will be able to sift through the, what is true and what is not. These always fail because they try to take the easy road, right? There's like a little technical solution. Or maybe as Twitter has done in the past, we can tweak um, our algorithm or our, or our platform a little bit so we give a little warning if we think that something is misinformation so that people click on that that's not going to work at least if it is part of the solution it's a very small part the only thing that's really going to work here is a general change in firstly i think the culture which people read online uh, and use social media when you see something emotive um, and, and this is something that literally everyone should do not just the tastemakers, but every reader, reader of these platforms, if you see something that's emotive or something that confirms your pre-existing biases, take a minute and think, is this actually true? Maybe look into it. Maybe check that uh, people who disagree with you are, are not being able to poke holes in it. 
um, take a step back, think about things rather than uh, just accepting them as true, even if they really feel like they should be true. And, you know, nine times out of 10, maybe you're a very good judge of these things and you'll be right. But that one in 10 times, uh, you will find that actually you were misled or there was an exaggeration. Um, the other thing that needs to happen is that institutions such as traditional media need to take a very hard look at themselves and begin rebuilding credibility, not driving people for clicks, um, which is one of the reasons I think that, that uh, people are incentivized to spread fake news is because it can be so financially um, rewarding. Uh, they need to uh, take a step back, really look at their business model, look at the way they're doing things, and just take it slow. Slowing down a little bit, I think, would do an enormous amount of good in our uh, ability to sift through what is true and what is not. And there'll still be disagreements. We're never going to get rid of fake news. Um, we never have. Throughout all of history, fake news has continued to be a problem all over the world. Yet, we can make it less damaging. And the key way to do that is for firstly, a culture of skepticism and responsible reading to take to, to, to become the norm amongst people who consume these, these things. Um, and also for the traditional gatekeepers to reestablish themselves as savvy, trustworthy institutions, which is, we're not anywhere close to yet, but you know, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, and Nicholas, I agree with you. And the writer, David Perel, has illustrated this uh, through what he calls the paradox of abundance. And there's never been a better time to access pretty much the entirety of human knowledge that's in everybody's pocket uh, walking around with them. Uh, but at the same time, there's this downside of the l lack of credibility, sometimes with the information you, you access, as, as we've discussed. And the metaphor that Perel uses is, is kind of like nutrition. Uh, so uh, in the United States, where he's based, it, it's never been a better time to access high quality, nutritious food. People know a lot more about uh, how to optimize their diet uh, for health. Uh, but at the same time, there's this obesity epidemic, 70% of, of Americans are overweight. Um, so, you know, and I think that that really illustrates uh, that paradox really effectively. And I often say to people when they talk about fake news and these kinds of conversations, well, would you want to go back to a kind of right. pre-internet era? And usually the answer is no. And uh, I think the reason why it's no is because people do feel also very empowered to have their voices heard, to create content like what I'm doing on this show and what our colleagues have done as well. So um, I think it's really important also not to, uh, to catastrophize and to... Uh, be overly alarmist. These are definitely negative externalities, but I think they can be managed. Right. I, I want to agree with that completely. Um, media, social media, internet, these things are technologies and technologies are sort of neutral for the most part. They're, it depends how they're used. Uh, in the past, you know, uh, the, the great historical example of this is in the use of the invention of the printing press, right? It's now thought of as one of the most important things in all of human history for spreading knowledge and creating things. But what many people don't know is the first book, apart from religious texts, to really gain traction in the world of the, uh, the, the, the printing press was a book about how to detect and kill witches. It was hugely popular all over Europe. And so it took a long time for 
institutions and methods of dealing with this technology to develop and for people to be able to control it and 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 uh, basically prevent it from uh, reduce those negative externalities the so same with newspapers right a lot of early newspapers that you read about in the 1800s spread lots of fake news everything from about you know uh, bigfoot to aliens to all these sort of things and it took a long time for certain players to emerge that were trustworthy that people respected and for people to read newspapers with a certain skeptical eye and we need to do the same thing with social media i think it will happen in time i think we will uh learn how to contain this 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 raging beast um and and, and put it to to work that will in a very good way um but it's going to take time and effort and it starts with individuals really taking responsibility for their own media consumption and looking at how they consume media and say, am I just feeding into the emotive algorithms that drive so much of social media? Um, or am I using this tool as it should be used to further my understanding of the world? Well, Nicholas, thanks very much. I think this has been a great discussion. And I really like your closing remarks there about individuals having to take agency over their own news diets, if you will, to continue that nutrition metaphor and be discerning about what they consume and also what they put out into the world on their own platforms, what they retweet or share. And, you know, I think that that's pretty consistent with the theme of this podcast, which is these bottom-up solutions uh, to some of the more intractable problems in the world. Uh, there are very few silver bullets, if any, uh, no matter what problem you're attempting to solve. So I think that that's a really important message to take away from this conversation. I just wanted to thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara. It was great to be here. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and subscribe to the channel. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well. And also, I'd be really grateful if you could share this with your friends, family, or colleagues. It helps to spread the word about the show. My name is David Ansara. Until next week, take care.